for the last, I guess, seven years of my career, I've been a teacher. And on the first day of every school year, I didn't teach any material. I always just went over the expectations and rules for my classroom. Uh, there was always um, things that I put in place to help with um, you know, making sure my students follow the rules. For example, if a, a student needed to sharpen their pencil, they would just hold up their pencil and I would nod my head so I don't have to stop the whole classroom to uh, you know, say, you ask, you may start sharpen your classroom or be confused on why. Uh, you know, they ask the question of, you know, or you know, the student raises his hand. And, but yes, w- w- what's your question? Oh, I just need to sharpen my pencil. You know, it just disrupts the whole classroom, disrupts everything in the classroom environment. Uh, my rule is always, you know, you, ne- you can go to the restroom pretty much whenever you need to, except when I'm up here teaching. If we're doing our practice, if we're doing an assignment, just ask to go to the bathroom, you can go. You know, you need to be in your seat. You need to be uh, in the classroom when the bell rings. If you're not in the classroom when the bell rings... You're late. I went over all those procedures, all those rules, all those expectations that first day of school. And then I reviewed them pretty much for the first month. You know, hey, what are you supposed to do here? What are you supposed to do here? We had many times in some classrooms we would have a quiz just over the syllabus that would go over the rules and expectations. And we would practice those things. We would model those things. We would uh, post the rules and expectations in the classroom. But many times when the students broke the rules, they didn't do what was expected of them. There was always punishment that was always involved when they did not do what they were supposed to do. You know, this Bible, the the Bible, is here for us, for our rules and our expectations while we are here on earth. You know, there is a rule book that uh, sports have to follow when they play the, the game. You know, there's a rule book for baseball, there's a rule book... For soccer, there's a rule book for football, and if those break the rules, that there's penalties that are involved, there's punishment that is involved, there are things that happen if they do not follow the rules. The Bible is our rule book, it is our rules of expectation for things that we are supposed to do and follow. The Bible gives us our expectations when it comes to things as far as worship. You know, the Bible, you know, there's certain things that God expects us to do, and today I want to talk about God expects us to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That is a direct quote from John 4, verse 24, there when Jesus is having His exchange with the woman at the well. In verse number 23, He says, God uh, seeks those who will truly worship Him. And then verse 24 says, God is a spirit. That's His identity. That's who He is. And He says, and He expects those to worship Him in two aspects, in spirit and in truth. And we're going to talk about what that means. That's what God expects out of us when we come together on the Lord's Day, Revelation 1 and verse number 5. That is the day in which Jesus was resurrected from the dead. It is the day in which we come together to partake of the Lord's Supper. It is the day when the first century church came together of their means, just like we will do here shortly. But it is the day in which we come together. And what I want us to do this morning is to go through and see what God expects from us in worship. Now, if you look at the example of Nahab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and verse number 2, this is a very popular example. It's something maybe you're familiar with, maybe not. You can look at Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and verse number 2. And here in this passage, you're going to see that God is not happy with these two individuals. 
Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1, it identifies them by name. It says, then Nahab and Abihu. Now, many times we just talk about these two boys and that's it. But when we look at it in its context, these are the correct two boys that had to be doing these sacrifices because they were from, notice it in the second phrase, the sons of Aaron. In order to offer up these sacrifices, these priestly things, they had to be from the lineage of Aaron, so they were the right boys. That's important to know, because not everybody could do this. God expected certain people, certain individuals, to do sacrifices under Old Testament law. The expectation, you had to be from the lineage of Aaron. Check number one. But then notice what it says. Each of them took a censer. You go back through the book of Leviticus, you see the direct commands that you see. They were supposed to take a censer and put fire on it. You look and you see God commanded fire throughout the Old Testament to do His sacrifices, to do these things. There is an expectation for fire, but notice this next part. And they offer profane or strange or unauthorized, some translation says, fire before the Lord, which He had commanded them not. This is the problem. God expected fire, but He expected a certain kind of fire. Now, since God expected a certain kind of fire, don't you think they should have used the fire that God commanded? It'd be like this, Noah building the ark. What did God tell Noah to do when he built the ark? Go fetch these some gopher wood. Now, what if, if, what if Noah would have said, well, I'm going to go get wood? Well, God expected wood, but God expected a certain type of wood. Gopher wood. Uh, very similar to what many people today speculate as a cypress type of wood. It was a very uh, particular kind of wood that they were to go get. He couldn't use ash. He couldn't use oak. He couldn't use pine. Because God commanded a certain type of expectation for him to do. And here in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, God expected them to use a certain kind of fire, and they did not do that. Now, what was that? What was What happens when you don't meet God's expectations? Look at verse 2. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. There is punishment that is involved when you don't do things God His God's way. We talked about this a few weeks ago on Wednesday night. God rewards obedience, but punishes disobedience. And that is a whole summary of the Bible. When you look at the Bible, God, God rewards obedience, but punishes for disobedience. Here, God punished them because of their disobedience to the expectation that God commands a certain kind of fire. And they did not do that according to their commandments. And so when we look at other examples, go with me to Mark chapter 7 and verse number 7. Let's notice here what's some problems here. There's some problems with the way God expects worship. We cannot come in and worship the way we want to worship. And that's what I want us to notice as far as the introduction, okay? Look here what Mark 7 and verse number 7 says, he says, look at verse 6 just to notice the context. And he answered and said to them, they asked him a question, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with the unwashed hands? Why is it that you aren't keeping the traditions? Notice what Jesus said. Well, Isaiah did prophesy of you well, saying, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart's far from me. You'll, you'll sing praises to God, but where's your heart on Sunday mornings? We'll talk more about that. Here in a second. But look at verse 7. And in vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines and commandments of men. Here in this point, it's number 2 in your introductions, letter C. This is vain worship. If something is done in vain, 
That means it is empty. That means it is meaningless. And when we worship God according to the traditions of men, when we do things according to tradition, instead of going back to the Bible and have authorized the commandment to do so, you know what we're doing? We're worshiping God in vain. The other way that we're worshiping God in vain is by honoring Him with our lips, but our heart is being far, far from God, meaning I'm just going through the motions. I checked my mark. I'm here on Sunday mornings. I did what I needed to do. I partake of the Lord's Supper. I sang some songs. But did I worship God? I think that's vain worship. Being I'm worshiping with my lips. I'm worshiping through the actions. But my heart, my intentions, my mind is not in this place. It's somewhere else. So we understand vain worship. Go over to Colossians chapter 3. Excuse me, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 23. Notice here what we see as far as will worship. This is probably, uh, well, I'd say both of these go hand in hand. But this one we see a lot more of in today's society. Uh, because people want to do their own will instead of the will of God. This is will worship. And this is where you put your own desires, your own wants, your own things above the will of Almighty God. Notice what Paul said here to the Colossians, verse 23 of chapter 2. He says, These things indeed have appearance of wisdom, of self-imposed religion, false humanity, neglect of the body, but are no value against indulgence of the flesh. Uh, some translations actually use the word will there. It says, These things have an appearance of wisdom of will worship or self-imposed worship, meaning what? I put in place what I want to put in. I don't care what God says. The idea of will worship. And then you have ignorant worship there where Paul's upon Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 and he, and he stands by and beholds their devotion. He sees all these inscriptions and then he sees this in verse 23. For I was by, passing by and considering the objects of your worship. Notice there, they are the purpose there of worshiping God. What does he say? Even though the altar of the inscription to the unknown God, the one whom you ignorantly worship without knowing Him, I also proclaim to you. So we see three examples here. We see the idea of will worship, meaning I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do my own self-imposed things in worship. There's the idea of keeping the traditions of man. That's vain worship. Worshiping Him with our lips, but my heart's far from Him. And then we see here the idea of ignorant worship. And those are all three bad examples or examples that we don't need to keep when it comes to relations, when it comes to the idea of worshiping God. So when we come together to worship, how is it I need to worship? I need to have true worship. God expects me to worship Him in spirit and in truth. I want to notice four points this morning of what we need to do to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Number one, let's notice the aim. The aim of our worship or the aim to worship God in spirit and in truth. When you come together in this assembly, what is your aim? What is your objective? What is your purpose? You might be saying it's, it's to stir up one another in love and good works. Absolutely it is. Hebrews 10 and verse number 24 and verse number 25. We come together to worship or to, to stir up, to edify and love one another. But what's our main objective? What's our main purpose in worshiping God? It is to worship God. That's our main objective when we come together here on Sunday is because we want to worship God. The, so let's, let's back up and answer this question. What is worship? The idea of worship is comes from the Greek word proteneo, which means to show respect towards a superior uh, with the idea of bowing down or falling prostrate. The literal translation means to kiss towards. The idea is I am standing here 
in the presence of God and I'm doing everything I possibly can to do things to glorify Him. I am here to worship, to praise, to give adoration to, to bow down, to fall prostrate, to kiss towards. And that's why I'm here on worship. That is my aim. That is my goal. That is my objective. And that is what God expects from us. Go over to Psalms. Uh, the, the book of Psalms is a great place to study about worship. But here we see the idea that we are here to glorify God. The purpose of worship is to glorify God. Psalms 29 and verse number 2, he says, Give unto the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in the beautiful of holiness. We come together to glorify, to, to give Him praise and adoration. Psalms 34 and verse number 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. What's the idea of exalt? It means to raise up, to put on a platform and that's what we do when we come together to worship. Is to exalt the name of Jesus. And the last thing I want to talk about as far as the aim is to approach Him with reverence. Now the King James Version looks at Psalms 111 and verse number 9. And it says, holy and reverent is His name. Now that's why we don't call our preachers reverend. Because reverend refers to the name of God, not any human because we're not worthy to be called reverend because he is the only one that is called reverend. But when we come into his presence, when we come together in the worship assembly, you know what we need to do because he is reverent? Give him the respect that he deserves. Many times today, and I've, I've noticed this in people that have a Church of Christ on their name and you watch them on their worship on YouTube and they do everything except give reverence. It's just a party. It's just a thing for show. It's to entertain people. Friends, when we come together to worship God, it's not for entertainment. I'm not here for myself. I am in a way, yes, I understand. Secondly, but my primary purpose is to worship Him. To exalt Him. To give Him the reverence, the respect that He is due. Because He is God. I'm not here for myself. I'm here for Him. And because I'm here for Him, I'm going to gain something from Him. You know, many people say, why well, I just didn't get much out of worship today. Well, how much did you put into it? And really, you're not, you're not here for yourself. You're here for God. But if, you're here, if you understand that point, that I'm here for God, and I'm here to worship Him, you know what? You're going to get something out of it. You're going to get something out of worship. So we, number one, we see our aim. Our aim is to glorify Him. Our aim is to approach Him with reverence, to show Him the respect. But number two, going back to our text of John 4 and verse 24... God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must, that's the expectation, in spirit and in truth. Let's look at the attitude. The attitude of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. The idea of worshiping God in spirit means I am going to worship Him with the correct attitude. That means when I come into the assembly, I have a positive attitude. I have an attitude... That is going to give him all my attention. That gives him all the respect. Gives him my full focus. It's your intellect. It's your mind. Where's your mind during worship? Now I'm, I'm going to be as guilty as guilty as any. You know, you just happen to go through the songs, right? You sing those songs over and over again on Sundays. You've you memorized them since you're you. Where's your mind at when you sing those songs? Because sometimes wondering about, man, I got this to do and I got to get this done. Man, I got this this week. I'm guilty. 
man, I got to get this done, or man, you know, I got, I got, I got to preach this, and I hope I memorize this verse correctly, or my mind doesn't need to be on that. When we're in worship, whatever we're doing in worship needs to be focused upon that, and that's worshiping God in spirit is the attitude that we need to have our mind in worship. I want to give you three things that we can do to help our attitude in worship. Number one, come with a positive spirit. A positive spirit. Now, what I mean by that is this. If you go over to Psalms 122 in verse 1, if, if everyone had this attitude that David had here in Psalms 122 in verse 1, there's no question we'd have better worship. If you want to improve your worship, start right here in Psalms 122 in verse 1. Notice what it says, I was glad. When they came and said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Once many times our attitude of worship. Oh, we got church today. Yep, I got to go to church. What about I get to go to church? Or what about, man, I'm excited. I get to go see my brothers and sisters today. I was happy. I was excited. I was glad to be able to come together and sing these songs of praise. To partake the Lord's Supper and commune with my Lord. Be able to give back. What about a positive spirit? A positive attitude is contagious. If you're excited, then guess what? The next person next to you is going to be excited. It's going to spread all around the room. Positive attitude. That's how you can improve your attitude in worship. But number two, come with a focused mind. And this is probably the one that, that gets most of us. I'm saying most of us, including me. It's Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7. Now, we've already read a very similar passage. Mark, Mark 7 and 7 and Matthew 15 and verse 7 or through 9 are very similar. Okay, But notice here, it says, Hypocrites, Isaiah did well saying of you, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What, what, what if Jesus said, you know, hey, you went to worship, or you went to church, let me say that. You went to church, you sang the songs, but you didn't worship me. What does that mean? You just went through the motions. You checked the box. You were here. You opened up the songbook. You sang. But your heart wasn't really in it. You weren't thinking about the ways the song. One way you can help this is by when you read or look at the words of the song, think about what they mean. Maybe think about Bible verses that connect to that phraseology. We sang holy, holy, holy this morning. Does your mind go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5? Does your mind go to a holy God about heaven that we talked about in Bible class this morning? There's a mansion that's waiting for me, an empty mansion. You think about John 14, 1 through 3, about how God is going to prepare a mansion for us. We, we, we sing joy to the world. And when's, when does the religious world meantime sing joy to the world? During Christmas, Right? Is it okay to sing joy to the world in, in May? Absolutely. Why? Because I'm thankful that Jesus came in Matthew chapter 1 to be born of a virgin, to die, live as a man, to die on the cross. And there's joy to the world because of that. We can sing that song any time of the year because as long as our mind's in it. Think about the words of those songs. That's the first thing that my mind popped up when I saw we're singing joy to the world. I'm like, okay, I like this. You know why? We can sing it. And we, as long as we understand the words of those songs. Sometimes, let, let, let me say this. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to back up. Third thing is, you can't be texting or talking to friends and truly be worshiping God in spirit and truth. 
You can't. You might be going, well, I can multitask. No, you really can't. Give your all to Jesus. Give your all to God in worship. Don't, don't be doing this and that. Be fully focused and ready to worship God. And that's how you're going to get more out of your worship. That's how you're going to be, be more engaged in worship is by doing, putting things aside and truly worshiping God. So we've seen the aim. Why are we here? We've seen the attitude. we got to have our mindset. we got to have, uh, put, you know, many times when we uh, pray, we say, Lord, help us to put worldly thoughts aside. Lord, help us block out the thoughts of the world while we worship you. And that's really what we need to be doing to help us with our attitude and worship. But number three, let's notice the authority to worship God in spirit and in truth. God said, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit, that's the attitude, and in truth, that is the authority. Okay, So when we worship God in spirit, we understand we got to do it with the right attitude, we got to do it with the right heart, the right mindset, but what about the authority? I don't think I've ever used this illustration here. If I did, just pretend I had it. The Bible. The B-I-B-L-E. What does it stand for? Our basic instructions before leaving earth, right? That's what the Bible is for. It is our basic. Ephesians 3 and verse 4, You can where you read, you can understand, you can know the truth. John 8, 32. It is our instructions, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and it is before we leave this earth. When we look at the Bible, it is our authority in religion. Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. This, this final book is going to be one that judges us. Therefore, we have to do what it says. This is our expectations like we started out with at the beginning of our lesson. It is our authority. Now, going back to the example of Nahab and Abihu that I started with earlier, what was their problem? It wasn't a heart problem, I don't think. I don't think it was that they were worshiping God insincerely. They weren't worshiping Him, but they were worshiping God without authority. They, If you look there at verse number 2, they did without the commandments of God. They did not, or the, the, the verse 1 says, they offered strange or profane and unauthorized fire before the Lord. You know what they did? They didn't do what the law said. They didn't do what this book said. They didn't do exactly the way God wanted it done. Remember, God expects us to worship Him in a certain way. This book tells us how to do it. If we can't find it in this book, then we need to do we don't need to do it. If we find it in this book, then we need to do it. We cannot add to and take away. The truth, spiritually speaking, is the Bible. John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. God expects us to worship Him in truth. Since the truth is the word of God, how should I worship Him? According to this book. When we reject authority, we are being prideful. Proverbs uh, 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction, the Holy Spirit before fall. James tells us to resist resist that and, and humble ourselves before God. We need to understand what authority is. We don't tell God how we want to worship, but instead God tells us how to worship and we obey. Too many times people say, well, I want to do this in worship. This is the way I like to worship. You know, I like to do this. I want to do this. What's the emphasis on? I. If you notice that, I, I, I. But what about God? He's the. I could have added another A. If you notice, all our points are starting with A. Who's the audience of our worship? God is right. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him. I'm not here to be entertained. I'm not here 
But I'm here to worship God. And when we worship God in spirit and in truth, we do it exactly as the Bible says. Now let's put everything together. Okay? We understand God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's the attitude. And that is the authority. We've got to do it according to the Bible. Now let's look at our last point, And this is going to wrap it all together. Let's notice the aspects of our worship. The aspects. And what that means is, what can I do in worship that is pleasing to God? We understand we've got to have the right mindset. We've got to do it according to the Bible. So let's look at the five acts of worship. Notice this in, in, your, in your handout. There's a note here. It says the first passage is the authority of worship, and the second is the attitude or the spirit of worship. Because if you notice, there's five acts of worship here we're going to talk about. Five authorized ways in which God, actions that God wants us to do in worship. And the first one is going to be the authority, and the second one is going to be the attitude. First one's going to tell us what to do, or how to do it, or when to do it. Second one's going to be, where's your heart need to be during that? And let's notice each of these. Number one, let's start with the Lord's Supper. There in Acts 20 and verse number 7, it says, On the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. Paul ready to depart tomorrow, but what did he do? He stayed there. So we see here in Acts 20 and verse number 7, that when did they partake of the Lord's Supper? On the first day of the week. But a lot of people say, well, it doesn't say every first day of the week. But what did they do? They did it on the first day of the week. Acts 2 and verse number 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the what? Breaking of bread and in prayers. What did they do on the first worship service? They partook of the Lord's Supper. What did they do on this worship service that wasn't just a, it was just a normal Sunday? Paul waited a few more days to stay there to partake of the Lord's Supper. What did they do? They took on that day. They partook of it every first day of the week. So here we see the authority. Why is it that we partake of the Lord's Supper every Sunday? Because that's the way the Bible tells us to do it. That's the way the early Christians did it. And that's how we need to continue to do it today. Many people today say, well, you know, Austin, uh, if we did it that much, that would degrade or, you know, uh, it, would, it wouldn't be as important to us. Friends, this is the most significant event in all of history. We need to remember and reflect upon it every first day of the week. We need to reflect on it every day and be thankful for it every day. But the Lord's Supper is given on the first day of the week. Many people today have gone on to other days of the week. But they don't have the authority to do that because what does the Bible say? The Bible says the first day of the week. You see that the attitude we need to have, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and following, about where does our mind need to be? That we don't need to be in danger of those things, right? And many times we read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through about verse number 30. Why? Before we partake the Lord's Supper. Because it helps us get our mindset, right? Helps us understand the importance of partaking that, that bread that represents His body, that cup that represents His blood. It helps us understand this is something we got to make, make sure our mind is focused upon. The authority. We, 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 if we wanted to, we could go a whole deep dive into this. We could look at the authority of why we use unleavened bread. Why is it we use unleavened bread? Because in the Bible, leaven represents sin, and the body of Christ was what? Pure. It was perfect. It was without sin. We use unleavened bread. We use the fruit of the vine um, to represent His blood as well. We could look at that uh, in detail looking at the Bible, but there's authority to do that. There's authority to do it on the first day of the week, but our attitude, our mind, needs to be reflected on the cross. How can I reflect upon the cross? I think Luke preached a sermon about a year ago on, on this, and I, he was telling me about it, and, um, I think I saw a handout one time about 
different ways to reflect upon the Lord's Supper. Maybe just say a prayer and reflect. Maybe maybe your mind picture what Jesus was going through. Maybe, you know, there's four, most of the time, four Sundays in a month. Maybe, maybe the first Sunday you read Matthew, the, in the account of Jesus and the crucifixion. The second one, read Mark. Third one, read Luke. Fourth one, read John. You just read over that and reflect upon, picture in your mind the suffering that Jesus went through for me and for you. Second aspect of our worship is giving. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Upon the first day of the week, they what? Gave of their means. They, they gave back of their means to God. Many, many people today say, well, uh, there are many religious groups say, well, we got to pass the plate. Here's the authority for it. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. They don't take the Lord's Supper. And if you look at the same wording, upon the first day of the week, upon the first day of the week, they both are there. Second Corinthians 8, 6, and 7 talks about how our attitude and giving needs to be. God loves a cheerful giver. He, lo- he loves one that gives cheerfully and liberally, but not grudging of necessity. Our third aspect of worship is prayer. First Thessalonians 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. And James 4, and verse 13 tells us the attitude we need to have. Why do you think we bow our heads in worship? Why is it that we close our eyes? Because we, we are praying with that prayer leader. We are praying... And thinking upon the words of that prayer so we can give the reflection of the things needed. What about singing? Ephesians 5 and verse 19. Praising God and having... Uh, Ephesians five nineteen. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What does it say there? Singing and making a melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, people today say, well, why is it the church of Christ does not use instruments of music in their worship? And that might be a question... You're asking yourselves this morning. Because Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16 and 17 give us one specific thing about music. Remember, in they having by you, God commands fire. But God commands a what? Certain type of fire. In the New Testament, God commands music. But God commands a specific type of music. And that is what? Singing. Nowhere in the New Testament will you find mechanical zip instruments of music being found. You go If you go through and do a history lesson and say, when did the churches begin using mechanical instruments of music? You're going to see that's many, many years after the existence of Christ. The early church did what God told them to do. God expects us to sing. Why? Because that's what He wants. God, God commands music. People might say, why do you members of the Church of Christ don't use music? I use music every Sunday. I use vocal music. That's what God expects of us because that's the authority in which He gives, but our mind needs to be there. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15, I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding. Meaning what? I'm going to sing the words of the song that I'm going to sing. I, I almost said this earlier, but I'm going to wait, I waited for it here. There are certain songs in the song book, I don't know if this one has it or not, that we don't need to sing. And you know why? Because they're not scriptural. Remember, if you go if you go look at Ephesians five nineteen, it says, uh, "Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs," and then what does it say? Or maybe it's Colossians three sixteen. It goes on to say, "Teaching one another." You know what we're doing when we're when we're singing? We're teaching one another. We're teaching about Jesus. We're teaching about heaven. We're we're teaching each other. And friends, we cannot sing unscriptural songs. Why? Because we can't we can't teach the false doctrine. Therefore, we can't teach the false doctrine. There's many songs that teach that uh, salvation is by faith only or by praying to Jesus or things like that. We need to stay away from those things because we cannot sing false doctrine. And of course, the last one of aspect of worship is preaching. 
there in 2 Timothy 4, verse number 2, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And then the attitude, the aspect that we need to have in worship is warning every man and teaching every man. Why is it that we get up here on Sunday and preach? It's to warn every man and teach every man in all wisdom. That every man may present himself perfect in Christ Jesus. So what does God expect of me in worship? He expects me to, to fulfill his aim of praising and worshiping him. God expects me to worship him with the right attitude. That is making sure my mindset's right. Worshiping with the correct authority according to the Bible and having the correct aspects. And that is the five aspects of worship. You see a question at the bottom of your handout. And it says this, been to church, but did I worship? You might be here this morning and you might think, you know what? I'm going to have to do a better job focusing my mind on Jesus, focusing my mind on God and worshiping Him. And you can make that change very easily. By just simply singing uh, and thinking about the words you sing or praying or whatever it may be. But think about that. I've been to church, but did I worship? It's easy to come to church. It's harder to worship. I mean, making sure I do it and keeping my mind focused on Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning you're not a Christian. You can become one. By simply doing what the Bible said, it's our authority. It said, Jesus said that we got to believe in Him. Hebrews writer says you must believe. We understand that faith found is the belief, is that foundational point. But it's because of our faith we must also repent of our sins. Acts 17.30, we must be willing to confess Him before men. Just like the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts 8 verse 37. You must be willing to be buried in water grave of baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 2 and verse number 38. And that's the point in which we are saved, First Peter 3 and verse 21. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but you need the prayers of the church. We'd be glad to pray with you and for you. If we can help you anyway, come now together, stand and as we sing.